You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 39, which really means that the system is useless because it can't distinguish between a true statement and a false statement. And that, my friends, is the whole damn purpose of this logic business. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Have you ever found yourself in a situation when someone sounds convincing, but you have this deep suspicion that there's something wrong? It seems like there's an answer for everything, and yet you still don't get a final answer. Well, this could happen if the person is employing circular logic. I know that A is true because B, and I know that B is true because A. Well, that's a pretty brazen example of circular logic, but if you introduce you know, C, D, and E and all that and make it more complicated, well, you might not even realize that circular logic is being used. Now, this might seem like a funny question, but what's wrong with circular logic? You know, could it be internally consistent? Well, sometimes it could be, but circular logic is one of the main ingredients to something called a paradox. A paradox occurs when you think you've come to a sound conclusion that isn't true. In other words, you conclude that something is both true and false at the same time. It means that you've made a mistake somewhere. It could be that there's an error in your logic. It could be that the two ideas are actually not contradictory. But what you often find out is that your definitions of, of what you're even talking about aren't even sound. You've been caught in the trap of circular logic. Now, these ideas really fascinated me when I was in high school and college. I think that the study of paradoxes is what really hones one's skills in hones one's uh, skill in logic and reason and mathematics. And it's also fascinating. It's like a puzzle. So uh, today in this solo show, I'm going to be teaching a little bit. We're going to cover some of the most famous logical paradoxes and how to resolve them. And I'll do my best with audio here. Most of this can be followed on audio alone, I think, but I'll summarize each paradox on the show notes page. That's localmaxradio.com slash 39. So I was really happy the other day to uh, take out some ads in a podcast called Space Nuts. It's a weekly podcast all about space. And it was really fun to hear my name on that. Uh, and I actually listened to a couple episodes. It was a lot of fun. So for those of you who are joining from Space Nuts, welcome. Um, if you happen to be a podcaster yourself, hey, I'm looking to go on other podcasts, so uh, let me know. Or I'm looking to talk to podcasters on my show. Uh, I love, I'm love. i loving this podcaster community. I'm actually having a podcaster who I like on my show next week. So that should be a lot of fun. I, I don't like to jinx it because I know that sometimes people can't do it. And, but uh, you'll, you'll find out who it is soon. Okay. So let me know who you, what you'd like to see more of. And if you want to do something to support this show uh, and keep it going, please consider a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen. All right. Now, before we talk about paradoxes, I want to mention a very interesting Twitter fight that went on, which involves probability, so I can chime in because we talk a lot about probability here. And it's also topical. I have to get this to this today because it's about the U.S. midterm election, which happens tomorrow, or actually like today, because I probably won't get it this out until after midnight, November 6, 2018. And the big question is, will the Democrats control the House of Representatives after this election, or will it remain in control by the Republicans? So in an interview with ABC, you have Nate Silver, who is probably 
the best known political forecaster out there, and all of his stuff is on 538.com. Um, now, I do have a bunch of criticisms with the way he sets up his predictions, but I need to point out, I need to concede that this is a really uh, tough environment with, with all the emotions going around in which you could make objective predictions. So he stresses a bunch of times that his predictions are uncertain. The polls are notoriously off. In some cases, the result is particularly difficult to predict. So at least I've never seen Nate Silver predict something that, uh, you know, something's going to happen with 99% accuracy and then turn out to be wrong. Uh, that happens to some publications in the last election. I'm not going to name who. Um, but you know there's a problem when you do that. You know, do they not understand probability or do they not understand their ability to predict the mass psychology and, you know, the complex system of communication between millions and millions of people in the country? You have to be humble when you're dealing with that or... Alternatively, maybe the only people willing to deal with it are the willfully blind or hubristic. But the problem that I sympathize with Nate Silver on is that the public really doesn't get the difference between someone saying, you know, there's a 99% chance this is going to happen and there's a 70% chance. And if you predict that something is true with a 70% probability, 70% confidence, and you're wrong, you know, you're going to be called out, you know, ha, you're wrong, as if, you said 99%. And, you know, people don't, don't care. So the reality is that force forecasters should be judged, not just on their predictions of what the most likely outcome is going to be, but also on their ability to project uh, confidence correctly. Not project confidence like, hey, I'm really confident, but actually to give an accurate you know, representation of their confidence. So actually, if I make 100 predictions and I was 70% certain, I... I uh, announced that I was 70% certain on all of them, but I actually got 99% of them right, you know, hey, maybe my confidence is much lower than it should be, which is just an example, um, or could be higher too. You know, usually people are more confident than, than they, they announce their confidence is higher than, they, than it should be because people don't take all the variables into account. So now keep in mind in the example I just gave, I made 100 predictions now, that is really tough to do in politics and compare apples to apples because each election is very different. Each, Even in the same election, each congressional district is very different, and that makes it very tough to judge polling techniques and statistical models accurately. Um, it's I feel like there should almost be an auditing system that looks at all of these polling results after the fact and say, and kind of scores each one, scores people like Nate Silver to, to tell you how accurate they were. Did they get the overall trend right? And did they get the order right? Because I could actually see a case where somebody, you know, gets the overall trend wrong. Like, let's say um, he says that Democrats are going to take the House, but he doesn't. But he tended to be right on which which specific elections they won and which specific elections they didn't. Or you know, maybe he got the overall trend right, but if you drill down, he actually was wrong on which specific ones he made. So you can probably, um, you know, judge these people after the fact. Nobody really does that. We only kind of just care about the next election, but we probably should do that. In Nate Silver's communication on the U.S. House of Representatives, I've seen a few numbers. His last one was 86%, but the one in question which was with his interview with ABC, he said 80%. Um, but later on in the interview, he also said, he's also quoted as saying that both outcomes are, quote, 
extremely possible. Now, I'm also talking about the words people use and whether they map to actual probabilities. Like if someone says, yeah, it may come out tonight, what probability are you going to assign that? And it's probably different for different people based on what you know about them. So the question, the big question here, and the reason why it's a fight, it's a semantic in, 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 largely, is what does extremely possible mean? Well, if we're using the numbers given, then we know that like 80%, 20%, then we know that 20% and up according to Nate Silber, should be classified as extremely possible. So then the fighting starts. You have Republican supporter Dinesh D'Souza saying, well, that's akin to saying 50-50 now. You know, within a single article, you've changed your confidence bound from 80% to 50-50%. The tweet says, and just like that, an 80% chance for a Democratic takeover of the House goes to 50-50. Nate Silver's polling operation can't survive a second embarrassment of the magnitude he suffered in 2016. Um, As an aside, by the way, he was not one of the people who said, you know, 99% uh, Hillary or Trump only has a 1% chance in 2016. But he also did have that problem where his confidence bound was flopping around a lot. So, of course, Nate Silver fires back at Dinesh D'Souza. You don't understand how math works. You know, I, I said 80-20. And all of this is because of that phrase, extremely, uh, extremely possible. I didn't want to say extremely po- probable, extremely possible. Um, there's, a, there's a difference there. Now, it's true that uh, Nate Silver certainly didn't mean 50-50 by, by that phrase. So maybe it's not just a disagreement on how the math works, but also how the language works. So, of course, our friends Nassim Taleb chimes in that uh, he says that if you say an outcome and its opposite are both extremely possible, then you're implying a maximally uncertain result. In other words, close to 50-50. But more interesting than that, because that's a phrasing issue, is the criticism that he made, uh, that uh, Taleb made on Silver, which I find the most compelling, is that if you keep changing the certainty of a forecast under uncertainty, well, that means that you're really uncertain and you're just hedging. So think about there's an event that may occur on each day I come out with, there's a 60% chance. No, there's an 80% chance. It's 70 now. Now it's 90. Oh, it's down to 55. Well, what do you take away from that? And the thing that you invariably take away from that, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be a, a mathematician, is that the person really isn't as certain as they sound. And, you know, if you're 90%, you're not really 90% because that value can change. So, and that's my main criticism with these political predictions. So I'd rather have Nate Silver just come out and say, hey, this is the result of a formula. I get 86%, but that's a calculation based on polling data, and we've been working on this machine, this calculation, through trial and error over the years. So it does change its uncertainty frequently, but that's just the output of our machine. We really just round it down to this amount. But uh, I know, I think he uses that 86% number to sound like there's something very scientific about it, like there's a 1 in 52 chance of pulling the ace of spades. It's when the messiness of the real world doesn't work like that. All right, good. Just got my tea here. All right, now a lot of my focus on the local maximum in the past has been on probability, just what I just spoke about before um, today, but also 
you know, there was episode zero and one about Bayesian inference. And if you remember way back in episode one, we talked about the Hawaii nuclear missile scare, where if you hear about an incoming nuclear missile, what is the chance uh, that it's just like, you know, a, uh, a false alarm versus a real alarm? In episodes 21 and 22, we talked about the interpretation of probability and some of the history behind Bayesian statistics. But there's another side to the coin, so to speak. Yeah, I said coin. That's usually associated with probability. But hey, we have a lot of puns with the word coin on the program recently. But in understanding what to believe, whose arguments to take seriously, if you're going to learn probability, then you're also going to want to learn basic logic for the same reason. When we talk about logical statements, we're not measuring the likelihood of one truth versus another, like we're doing in probability, but rather we're trying to determine which truths lead to other truths. In other words, if I have a bunch of facts, like a pile of facts, I can combine those facts to, to, to create new facts. So the most common one is that you know, if I say if A, then B, then as soon as I learn A, I can infer B from that. So very useful, very powerful, but of course, like anything, if placed in the wrong hands, like probability, you can end up believing something that just isn't true. So I usually like to think of logical statements as a complex series of pipes. Now bear with me for a second here. Uh, in this example I just mentioned, I said if A, then B. Um, let's say if you listen to a full episode of The Local Maximum, then you've heard my voice. So I see two jars here. One is that a person listened to The Local Maximum. And the second jar is that they've heard my voice. Now, there's a pipe that connects one to the other. Something can flow through that pipe. I call it truth juice. It could be the actual truth juice or it could be hypothetical truth juice. So if the truth juice starts flowing through, they've listened to the local maximum, then the pipe takes it down to they've also heard my voice. Now, it doesn't flow the other way in these pipes. Sometimes it does, but not in this case, because not everyone who's heard my voice has listened to the local maximum. So this is a data structure in computer science. It's a flow network, more or less. Um, maybe not exactly a flow network. There are other names for it, you know, lattices, and whatnot, uh, partially ordered sets. Let's not even get into it. Um, but there's a source and a sink, everything flowing into a jar labeled truth, uh, because that jar is always true. And I usually place that on the on the right side of my diagram. And then on the, on the left side, I have a jar labeled false. Now this is the paradox jar. So everything flowing from the paradox on the left, which is the most general statement, uh, and it flows to the truth on the right, which is the most specific statement. Now, if we prove a paradox, if we prove a false statement, then we prove the paradox. So that something is both true and false at the same time, that's a paradox, well, then the truth juice flows into the forbidden paradox jar. And if it flows into the forbidden paradox jar, then it flows into every statement imaginable. So to drive that home, I don't think I explained that right. If you drive that home, if you accept a certain way of doing logic and that logic leads to a contradiction, then everything in that logical system is both provably true and false which really means that the system is useless because it can't distinguish between a true statement and a false statement. And that, my friends, is the whole damn purpose of this logic business. So that sort of, you know, um, violates the whole purpose of it. So you might have seen this in math class. Somebody claims that they can prove one equals two. And you immediately know that the proof is bogus because one does not equal true. And if it were true, 
then all numbers would be equal to each other. Because, I mean, if one and two are the same, then two and three are also the same because you kind of increment each one and so on and so forth. So our number system then collapses into a single value, a single number, which is a pretty useless number system if you want to use it to, I don't know, count things. So usually those proofs that one equals two use some variant of division by zero, but cleverly hidden. So you'll start with a quantity x, which is kind of equal to two times that quantity. So you get an equation that says x equals 2x. And we know that the only case where a number is equal to double, you have a certain amount of something and you double it and you have the same amount, then the only case where that happens is when that amount is zero. But when we're doing the algebra, we kind of forget that x equals zero and we end up dividing by x and then we end up with the equation one equals two. And so the trick with that is that you could make any two numbers equal if you just multiply them by zero, but that's not true for any number other than zero. So if I multiply two numbers by seven and they were unequal before, then they're gonna be unequal after I multiply both of them by seven. Like if I have 10 apples here and 20 apples there and then I multiply both groups by seven, they're still gonna be unequal. But that's not true for zero. If I multiply both groups by zero, then they're equal. So when you factor out the zero, that doesn't tell you that the two sides are equal. So it's a basic kind of algebra fact. And the point is that the zeros in these proofs is usually hidden, so you don't realize that you're dividing by zero, and then you end up with that crazy result. And that's the way that most logical paradoxes work. They seem to lead to an absurd result. They seem to prove something false, but in reality, there's a break in the chain of logic. So let's step back to some pure logic for a little bit, put the algebra aside, and see if we can talk through some of the famous paradoxes to sort of figure this all out. So the first famous paradox that I'm going to bring up is the liar's paradox. That goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks. It's really the introductory paradox, I would say, sort of exposes the problems with most paradoxes. And the paradox is as follows. <clears throat> Let me take a sip. The paradox is as follows. This statement is false. Okay. Now, is the statement that I just made true or false? Well, there's sort of a problem now, because if it's true, then it's false. By definition, this statement is false. So it can't be true. But if it's false, then the statement is false, so it must be true. So you kind of are in a state where you're kind of going back and forth between true and false. It can't be true or false. So now this paradox has kind of a slimy cousin, which doesn't really seem like a paradox at all, but I'll tell you why it's slimy. It's a little two-faced. It goes something like this. This statement is true. Now, this one is overlooked because it's consistent. Most people don't have the kind of, um, what's it called? The, uh, you know, when you're, you have hold two, two things in your head um, at the same time, but they kind of contradict each, each other. Cognitive dissonance, that's it, that's it. Okay, so uh, this one is, when I say this statement is true, it could either, it could be true. And there's no contradiction there. There's no problem there because it's true. It says it's true, and it's true. And if I say it's false, well, then the fact that it's true is false, and it's also false. So it could be either way, and it's consistent. So, you know, think about it. So there'll never be a truth value assigned to, to the truth teller statement. There'll never be a truth value assigned to the liar's paradox. You can't assign a value to either one of these statements. You know, and that's not because those statements are vague. Oh, no, they are perfectly clear. It's because they rely 
on circular logic. So let's hear an example of circular logic from the 2006 movie Idiocracy. Okay, look, you want to solve this problem. I want to get my pardon, so why don't we just try it, okay? And not worry about what plants crave. Brando's got what plants crave. Yeah, it's got electrolytes. What are electrolytes? Do you even know? It's what they use to make Brando. Yeah, but why do they use them to make Brando? Because Brando's got electrolytes. So (laughs) that's a circular argument or circular, not really circular argument, a circular definition. Uh, It's not even a good circular definition, so that's what kind of makes it funny. It would have been well-founded if he, if when he asked why do they use them to make Brondo, if the answer was because that's the premise on which our society is built and we don't question it. But that's never the answer, of course. People don't realize those things. So Brondo is by definition a drink with electrolytes, and electrolytes is by definition the ingredient for Brondo. So let's use this example to imagine a dictionary that you're using to define words. So let's say you have a dictionary and you want to know the definition of the word, of a word, so you look up that word. And then it has a definition which uses other words that you don't understand and you need to look up those other words and so on and so forth. So you look up those other words and then you get more words, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this dictionary isn't infinite. It's carried in a book or maybe it's carried in a file. So eventually, eventually one of two things will happen. First, you can get to a word in the dictionary that's so basic that the dictionary says, you know, look you, I can't define this word. This is just a basic word that I expect everyone to know if you're going to be using this dictionary. So think of that as an atomic word or an axiom or sort of like a base level word. And the other thing that can happen is that the dictionary will use one of the words that you've already tried to look up. So it creates a circular dependency among the definition of words. And I actually think that real dictionaries do this sometimes. And so you can't really know the definition from that. You can get patterns from, you know, looking at the structure of the circular dependencies, but you can't get a true definition from those circular dependencies. And the liar's paradox and also the truth teller's, you know, slimy consistency illustrates why these circular definitions fail. So this statement is false, refers to itself. When I say this statement, I'm referring something to something that isn't defined yet. I'm telling you to build a house, and in step one, I say, examine your built house and you know, write down these specifications. It doesn't work. So the same thing with this statement is true. When I start with this statement, this statement has no meaning yet. So in mathematics, both of those statements are not well-founded. Well-foundedness is an important concept in mathematics and logic. It means that If you use that dictionary that I spoke about, you'll eventually get to atomic words, ones where the meaning is inferred, and you won't run into a circular argument like with Brondo and electrolytes. You could even have an infinite dictionary that's well-founded mathematically, so long as you eventually get to atomic words. So an infinite sequence of different words doesn't work either. You have to be able to look up the whole definition in a finite amount of time, but if you have an infinite dictionary where everything can be looked up in a finite amount of time, that's okay too. Now, are there any cases where circular definitions are allowed? So it seems weird to me that we just kind of dismiss them out of hand, especially since in kind of colloquial thought or everyday thought, we actually use circular definitions a lot and it doesn't always lead to trouble. So is there anything that we can do with them? And actually the answer is yes. 
Because when you have a circular definition, what you really have is an equation. So when I say this statement is false, I'm really saying that statement X equals X implies false. Um, or even a simpler way to put it, because if X implies false, that means that there's a pipe from X to the paradox jar. So even more simply, X equals not X. And then when you get one of those equations, you can do some Boolean algebra. You know, X is either true or false. Do either of these possibilities fit the equation X equals not X? And the answer in this case is no. You can't assign true to X. The equation doesn't work. And you can't uh, assign false to X because it would be false equals not false or false equals true. And so this is an equation without a solution. And there are plenty of those in the real world. We don't, doesn't bother us. You know, is there a number both greater than six and less than three? Nope. Not in the standard number system, at least. But nobody gets mad at the question. Nobody gets confused by the question. And they, they understand what the answer is. So, okay, what about the truth teller? Uh, the truth teller statement kind of boils down to X equals X. Well, in this case, X can be either true or false. It's consistent with multiple answers. And that's okay as well with an equation. So I'm thinking, now I'm just going to kind of flip it around. I'm thinking of a number greater than three and less than six. There are multiple answers to that question. No paradox, no problem. So sometimes you have these circular definitions that are actually definitions. Um, to harken back to an example from before, the number that is equal to itself times two. It can only be zero. It exists and there's only one. So in that case, a circular definition can actually be used as a definition for a, a single value if you can show that a solution to the equation both exists and that it's unique. So here are some more famous derived paradox, derived paradoxes, which get even more interesting. Many of them are from the turn of the last century. Starting out, there's Russell's paradox that's also known as the Barber's paradox. It comes from mathematician Bertrand Russell in 1901. In the history of mathematics, the turn of the 20th century is actually very interesting because they, mathematicians think they're honing in on kind of the universal axioms, the universal foundations of mathematics. Uh, a big name in that is David Hilbert. And with these paradoxes that start to get discovered, that whole idea starts to get blown apart. So in the late 1800s, you have set theory. Now it's called naive set theory. They didn't call it naive back then, but mathematicians were working with sets of values, infinite sets, etc. And they believed that you can turn any predicate, any statement into a set. So in other words, the set of all things with this property seems very reasonable. The set of all things that are green the set of all things that fly, you know, all of those, all of those, you know, phrases seems like it's describing something reasonable. And that really wasn't a dumb assumption. But the mathematicians who were working under this assumption, they were brilliant. And you had uh, Frege, I think that's how it's pronounced, and Georg Cantor, both German. So sorry if I get the pronunciation wrong. Um, it's, I always read these, so when I'm, I've read a ton about them, but I don't hear their names that. So they started to realize that, and so did Bertrand Russell. Uh, he was British, so I should be able to pronounce it. I assume it's Bertrand, but we'll see. But he put together a paradox that illustrated the problem really well, and it's colloquially called the barber paradox, because the barber's rule is that he only shaves people who won't shave themselves or who don't shave themselves. And the question is, does the barber shave himself? 
So we're talking about a male barber here. This is early 1900s. No problem with uh, gender stereotyping back then. So he shaves himself, and then he's breaking a rule because he's not allowed to shave someone who shaves himself. If he doesn't shave himself, then he's also breaking the rule because he's obligated to shave people who don't shave themselves. So in the language of set theory, um, the way that Russell communicated this, you know, in the language of mathematics, it was the set of all sets that don't contain themselves. So the problem is actually the same as the problem before. There's a hidden circular definition now. You can have this barber or this set easily if the barber doesn't consider himself as a potential client. You know, in other words, if I have a bunch of predefined sets and some of those sets contain themselves and some of them don't, and I want to talk about the ones that don't, I can do that. But I can't do that if the set I'm creating is also the one that I'm categorizing with itself. So in other words, when I take a predicate, the set of all things with property X, I actually have to have a working definition of the, quote, all things that I'm divvying up. Otherwise, you know, that statement is not well-founded and it's circular. And so now there's this sort of convention in mathematics that sets must be well-founded in order to be well-defined. Now... You can have a data structure that refers back to itself, but not a set. So, for example, if I'm reading a book and it has 10 pages, and then at page 10 it says, this story continues at the top of page 5. Well, I can continue reading that book indefinitely. I can continue reading it forever. It'll get repetitive, but I can continue reading it forever. And so if I wanted to print out you know, the first 100 pages of the book, I can do it. You know, It would just be page 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and I can print out 100 pages. So that's computationally self-referencing. And the book as a whole can be thought of as a well-defined computation where I give you a page number and you can print out the page. So sometimes self-referential structures have these really interesting computational properties. We make good we make a lot of use of that as programmers. We make a lot of use of that as computer scientists. And maybe I'll do a show about that. But sets and collections are kind of, by definition, something that are things that are well-founded. So the next one I want to bring up is Curry's paradox. It's along the same kind of lines as before. This is named after Haskell Curry. And I, you know, I learned the Haskell programming language at Yale, which really changed the way I looked at computer science. And that was named after this guy's functional programming. So here goes the paradox. This statement implies that Brooklyn is the capital of America. So his paradox also uses this statement, quote this statement like the liar's paradox. So you know there's going to be a problem here. Let's look at it at as an equation like we did before to try to break it down. So since Brooklyn is the capital of America is false, you get X equals X implies false, which is really just this statement is false. So you're left with the liar's paradox again. This paradox is very similar to the liar's paradox. But remember, Haskell-Curry is known for computational logic. So this one is interesting because it's one that really trips up computers. I know a little bit about this. I started to build a theorem prover as a, a theorem prover that was an aborted senior project at Yale. Uh, I ended up doing sticky map instead. But I also took an automated deduction course at NYU. So I've looked into some of this. So this statement trips up computers because to prove an if statement, which is which is the pipe that carries the truth juice, remember that, if A then B, you know, what an automated deduction system will do is it'll have a list of things that it knows are true, 
and then it will add A to that list of known truths and then see if it can prove B from there. So in our case, let's try to prove this statement implies that Brooklyn is the capital of America. Assume that this statement is true. Therefore, this statement implies that Brooklyn is the capital of America is also true because that's the definition of the statement. And because we know that the implication and the premise, we can conclude that Brooklyn is the capital of America. Therefore, the statement is true. And therefore, Brooklyn is the capital of America is also true according to the computer. I'm in the capital, folks. Watch out. So this one really trips up computational deduction systems, and that's another reason to care about well-foundedness. And the final paradox I wanted to get to is Berry's paradox, um, which is also um, which was also explored with, by uh, Bertrand Russell, but named after a librarian he, who I, I assume found it as well, or maybe found it first. But you know he can't have two paradoxes named after him. That's just that's just greedy. And so it goes as follows. <clears throat> The smallest number that cannot be described in less than 13 words. Now that's 12 words. So let's see, I think I found, let's say I, I think I found the answer, and the answer, um, it, it, it's a number that's so complicated you need 13 words to describe it. Then the answer immediately gets invalidated because now I have a phrase that describes it in 12 words, and then you keep going to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. So it, 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 it sort of, you know, it, it sort of hurts your head. Like, where where does this... It's almost like, you know, there's another one out there. I'm not sure where this comes from, where it's, what is the first uninteresting number? So the first few numbers are interesting. You know, zero is interesting. One is interesting. Two is interesting. You could say something about it. But then the first one that is uninteresting is, by definition, interesting. And so that can't be the first uninteresting one, and so on and so forth. So it's like, where do you... You know, where, 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 does it, where does it become uninteresting is sort of an undefined thing. So this actually, Barry, coming back to Barry's paradox, there actually is circular reasoning here. But the circular reasoning is much more complicated than what we have before. Uh, it's really hidden. The key phrase that's circular, that's uh, not well-founded, is cannot be described or be described. And that implies that you already have a well-defined language and a rules for that language uh, for describing numbers. So let's say, you know, I use the phrase the billionth prime number. I don't know what that is, but I'm sure that's the most succinct way of describing that number. That's four words. Maybe if billionth prime counts, maybe I could describe it in two words. But in any case, you know, we can agree that when I say the billionth prime number, that describes a specific number even though, you know, I can't maybe, maybe don't know how to write it in base 10 yet. I don't even know if I can compute that. Probably you can. Um, but, um, yeah, actually, maybe, maybe you can't. But um, it's, we kind of agree that it, it specifies a specific number. So the statement in Barry's paradox actually sort of reaches beyond the language. It's sort of, you know, if you exclude it from the, the, the phrase in Barry, Barry's paradox doesn't count in the linguistic definition of a number. So it's sort of outside of the language. So if you consider it outside the language, then there's no problem. Um, but with a certain set of language rules, there's a number out there somewhere that can't be described in less than 13 words. And Barry's phrase describes that number, but it's not valid in that particular language. So if the phrase in Barry's paradox isn't in this language, what is it? Well, it's kind of like a meta language that 
describes things that can be described in language. And then, of course, you can have a meta-meta language and a meta-meta-meta language and so on. And that's why mathematicians develop these finite ordinal numbers to deal with the problems. And those get out of control. And I don't know, maybe I'll do a show on that too. But, you know, already it should be, if it's not hurting your head, there's something wrong with you. So this show ends with Gödel's Incompleteness Theorem. This came out in 1931. So you had naive set theory in the late 1800s mathematicians and logicians started to realize that you need to have well-founded definitions, otherwise it, it doesn't quite work. And then that means that whatever definitions you have, you can always refer to something outside of it, aka, uh, you know, the, the, the barber is not included in a set of people. And then in Berry's paradox, when you have a language, you can speak outside the language. So the dream of finding a universal mathematics started to kind of slip away. And in 1931, it was dealt the final blow by Kurt Gödel. Um, and coincidentally, Europe as the center of mathematical thought was also kind of dealt a final blow around that time. So some of the personalities that I'm describing when I looked into it here would be actually fascinating biographical accounts. So we don't have enough time to go over Gödel's incompleteness theorem here, but he found a way to construct a logical statement from any sufficiently complex set of laws that evaded provability. That means that whatever system we set up, there's always questions that we can ask within the system that only have answers from outside that system. Um, think of you know Barry's statement where you're talking about a language for describing numbers, but you're speaking in a different language. So that's it. So I started this program with an example from Idiocracy, and yeah, a blatant circular argument is dumb, but there could be very complex circular arguments that took many years for the greatest minds to untangle and we're still untangling them. So if you catch yourself falling into a certain circular argument or a paradox and you, and you catch it, or, or maybe you can't catch it for a while, then uh, you're not an idiot at all. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel, feel the power. And she said, I don't care what you say, you're going to see me shine.